morning. If you're first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. Uh, we will be in Proverbs chapter 6 today. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table over there. Feel free to grab one and open it up. Um, we are going to continue our study through Proverbs 1 through 9. I will pray for us and we'll go ahead and dig in. King Jesus, I thank you that this church belongs to you. This is your church. We exist because of you. This people exists because you came and conquered Satan, sin, and death on the cross, because you conquered over the grave, raising from the dead. You're ruling and reigning as we speak. We are awaiting your return to put all things back the way they're supposed to be. And between here and there, we get to be your people for your glory, enjoying you, making your name known, making disciples of you. But we don't do it because we're clever. We don't do it because we're smart. We don't do it because of anything we've got. We do it because all authority on heaven and earth have been given to you. And you've sent us on your mission to do your work. I pray, Lord, today that we would not forget that you are present with us. That, that we are being built up with you as our cornerstone, as a temple. That the Holy Spirit is here with us present with us, that we come to meet with you, and as we go, you go with us, and wherever we go, to our jobs, or, or, or to school, or wherever we might find ourselves, that, that you are with us, Jesus, that your spirit indwells us, and because of what you've done on our, your cross, we get to live for you. I pray you would uh, help us to see that your gospel would be a lamp to our feet as we navigate the world in which we live. And we can only do that if you would help us and be gracious to us. And, and we ask knowing that these are the kinds of things you love to do for your people. So Jesus, we love you and pray these things for your glory and for our joy. In your name, Jesus Christ, amen. So we're in Proverbs 6 today, and we're going to take the whole chapter. And I think this is important because we need kind of one of the verses in the middle. And we'll start there, which we'll get to in just a second. Uh, I think it's really, really important because this is the kind of chapter that if we're not careful as to where we are or what we are doing, it could be reduced to do this and don't do that. Uh, in fact, we'll, we'll hear, uh, you know, don't get entangled in weird debt stuff, don't be sketchy, uh, don't lie to people, don't gossip, don't destroy people with your words. Uh, now, the thing about it is, is that I could literally get up here and I could preach from those themes and I could say, to be a good person, you need to do these things. And most people would actually probably agree with me. I could preach a compelling sermon, and I could do so without the gospel of Jesus Christ, if I'm not careful. We can give people advice, and yet we can miss the reality of the gospel. Every time somebody asks your opinion on a place in their life where they know Jesus or not, is an opportunity for you to bring the gospel to bear. Uh, and it can even, it's okay, this is not in my outline, but just so you know, it's okay to tell someone, well, this is what I think you need to do in light of the gospel. First of all, you need to get right with Jesus. But what do you expect? You asked an evangelical Bible-believing Christian what he thought about it. So, hey, you're surprised? Every opportunity is a chance to share about Jesus. So here we are in 6. And my hope today as we look at this whole chapter, which is really several paragraphs uh, kind of put together and ordered together, uh, that we can demonstrate how the gospel uh, is the lamp of our life. It is the lens by which we see the world, and it is the guide for every step we are to take. Uh, now, this is important, because you might be saying, I thought we were in Proverbs, right? 
Uh, it's easier to connect other parts of the Bible. Passover. It's the Passover lamb. Well, Jesus said he was the Passover lamb. So let's look how this arcs forward to Jesus and how this is foretelling of Jesus. But here we find ourselves in Proverbs. We're just going to start with things like, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger. And you're like, okay, so now what does that have to do with the gospel? Uh, what I would encourage you to do as you're reading your Bible is to know how to read your Bible. To read it slowly. To ask it the right questions. To ask things like, where am I right now? And when I say where am I, I mean with your whole Bible. Because the Bible has a story, has a history. I always want to be careful with story. It's, it's not just a choose-your-own-adventure book. It is a history. It's the history of redemption that ultimately, in 30 seconds or less, that God, he made everything good in his holiness and his grace and his mercy. Human beings broke that. Sin enters the world. God makes a promise to fix it. And most of the Old Testament is really about getting us from that promise to the solution to the problem. His name is Jesus Christ, God himself, who enters into human history to save us from ourselves, to die for our sins in our place, not because we can get up to God, but because God had to get down and get to us. Follow this in every world system. Every world system is how you can do right, meditate, think uh, pilgrimage or any other thing up to God or into God's good graces. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you and I, friends, cannot do it. <coughs> excuse me. Oh, excuse me. You and I, friends, cannot do this on our own. So God in the person of Jesus Christ had to get come down and get to us. And so he does all the right stuff we were supposed to do. He doesn't do any of the wrong stuff we do. And ultimately he dies on the cross to pay the price for our sins because God is just and the justifier. God doesn't sweep evil under the rug. He doesn't just let you off with a warning. Jesus Christ comes and drinks the cup of wrath, the business end of God's justice, so I don't have to. Not only that, he doesn't just pay the price for our sins. Uh, Jesus came and rose from the dead to give us new life. Read 1 John. 1 John talks about life eternal, and when you read it, it's present tense. Jesus came not just to give us life eternal with God. He came to change us now. He came to give us new hearts. He came to give us new desires. He came to put his spirit inside of us. He came to be present with us in his Holy Spirit. And now we live as the, in the church area as ambassadors of this really, really good news. Jesus saves sinners from death to life. And he's ultimately going to come back and put everything back the way it's supposed to be. Now, what does that have to do with Proverbs? And what does that have to do with reading our Bibles? Well, where's Proverbs? Proverbs is kind of in the middle between we broke everything and he comes back to fix it, right? So as we're here, we need to understand that as Christians, these aren't just pithy statements, but that we need to understand what we already know. You can't unknow what you know. And you can't unknow that Jesus Christ is God himself who came to save us from ourselves. And so we're here... And we, we look at these Proverbs and we have to ask the question, so what? Why should, I even, why should I even read Proverbs if I'm a Christian, if Jesus has done all these things? Isn't this before he came? Or, or even a bigger question, why should I even read the Old Testament? Well, Jesus is going to answer that question for us in Luke 24. The whole thing's about him. Second uh, Timothy 3.16. All scriptures breathed out by God. That This is ultimately about Jesus. Now, sometimes that means we have to slow down and say, well, how? And sometimes it's more obvious and sometimes it's less obvious. So here we are. Skip down with me. Let's pick up our lens. 
skip down with me to Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20. My son, so remember, we have this literary device, a father addressing his children. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. This word here is Torah, which is a word for teaching or law, but it's the word for the first five books of the Bible, and that's on purpose, by the way. There's other words in Hebrew for teaching. He's, he's using this intentionally, and here's why. One of the premises of Proverbs that we've kind of, this has been one of the drums I've had to beat again and again and again and again, and will continue to beat till Easter, till we get out of Proverbs, uh, is that all of this, all of this wisdom, all of this truth is how to navigate the world in which we live, but it's how to navigate the world in which we live in light of who God is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You hear that? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, I always have to say this, footnote. What it means here is not necessarily um, that we're uh, terribly afraid of God. It's awe and wonder. Not that there aren't reasons to be afraid of God in all his majesty and might and justice, right? But as Christians, uh, we know that Jesus has paid the price for our sins. So we get to enter in and approach God and know God. To be a Christian is to know God through Jesus. To be a Christian means that we get to draw near to the throne of grace. Uh, that we get to go in and meet with God by the power of the Spirit through the person of Jesus Christ. And that, yes, God is present with us now. And the, the reality is it's a, it's, a, it's a truth. When you pray to God, if you are a Christian... And you might not have that sort of like Brother Lawrence sort of like experiential uh, experiencing the presence of God thing. In uh, 2015, we kind of get lost over there. And we actually miss the promises of the gospel that even when it doesn't feel like he's near or present, he is. When it feels like he's distant, he's not. If you're a Christian, you've been bought by the blood of the Lamb, the Holy Spirit indwells you. It might not feel like he hears you right now, but he does. This is the truth of the gospel. And it's not based on what you can conjure up in terms of feelings from inside yourself, but what Jesus has done on the cross, what Jesus has done in the resurrection. Now, I say all that to say that we're in Proverbs here, and these, these, this parental wisdom, the commandment from the father and the teaching from the mother is to be understood as these are people, these are Torah-believing people, right? We have the whole Bible now, but they only had the first three big sections, right? The Old Testament. They make one big section in the Old Testament. So, these are people giving what we would call godly advice. But what's, I think, appropriate for us is not just to leave it there, right? We don't leave it without Jesus. We pick up all the other stuff. Their knowledge of God is our faith in Jesus, and it's just the same thing articulated in a different way, and we get it in fullness. What do I mean by that? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, says this. Long ago, that's them, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's where they're sitting on that trajectory as we open up chapter 6. But in these last days, that's from the church era till the time he returns, he has spoken to us by his capital S, Son. The clearest way God has spoken to us is through Jesus Christ. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. By the way, Jesus is God. 
Okay, so now we're here back in Proverbs, back in verse 20. Now, what do they tell them to do with this teaching, this godly teaching? Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will uh, lead you. When you lie down, they will watch out over you. And when you wake, they will talk with you. That's amazing. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. So this, this true instruction, this, this reality of the gospel, this, this story, this history of redemption, the good news that Jesus saved sinners from death to life, the reality of the person of Jesus, the manger, the cross, and the crown, his actual life, the manger, there's sort of handles you can, or hooks you can hang it on. The manger, the cross, and the crown. His life here on earth, his death and atoning work on the cross, his resurrection, current rule, and return. Okay? This is all who Jesus is, and this is all good gospel news to us. And so we take this reality, this truth, of where we now sit in the history of the world and where we sit with Jesus in the truth of his gospel and who we are because of him. We're adopted sons and daughters of God Most High. Uh, We know him. We love him. Our sins have been paid for. We've been made right. We have new hearts. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And I could go on and on and on, but my text is Proverbs 6, so I'll stop there. So we don't leave that behind. We take that with us. And, and my hope is that we understand in this, this reality of who you are and where you are in history is a lamp to our life. So instead of me standing up here and saying, don't be sketchy, don't lie, don't do this, we actually look at these things, these sections here with this idea, and my hope is that we can apply the truth of the gospel in the text to our life. And this is what you should be doing. You're reading Proverbs. You're reading Ecclesiastes. You're reading Lamentations. Where am I in the story? Where am I in history? Where is it going? Where am I right now? And what does this actually have to do with me? And I I, I will argue with you. I will argue with you. I will arm wrestle you over this one. If you do this well and right, when you're in Lamentations, you can actually see how God is working across the trajectory of history, uh, what he can show you right now, and that this actually does... As Paul told Timothy, this is actually valuable for your life as a Christian person. And again, it's not just don't do this, don't do that. So we have our our lamp, which is the gospel. Now let's take it back to verse 1. And then we're going to go through the whole chapter. And it's going to be awesome. My son, if you put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger... If you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. There's a lot going on here other than what a fowler is. Um, the main deal here is you're trapped like an animal. Well, how's he getting trapped like an animal? Well, it's not saying don't ever do business with your neighbor. That would be hard for some of us, especially if you do business, right? 
Uh, and it's not saying don't ever loan anybody anything because we see that in the Gospels. Loan, like you're not going to give it back. Uh, it's not saying only look out for yourself. I think what it is getting after is that when you do business with sketchy people, when you do sketchy business, it can ruin your life. Not only that, if you get entangled and ensnared in sort of the way the world does things like money, for example, it will lead to your ruin, especially if you do it in a sketchy way. So why do you put up security for a neighbor? So you're vouching for somebody. Okay, let's, let's bring it to 2015. You're vouching for somebody. Oh, yeah, you could sell that guy. You, guy, you could sell that guy a car. I'll, I'll sign on his, on his loan, even though you know he's sketchy, and the bank comes for your house instead of his, and it's bad news bears, right? Uh, th there's a general entanglement in the way the world is doing money in business. Now, as Christians, we do business, right? Have you ever bought a house or a car or a anything? There are sketchy and dangerous ways to do it. There are normal ways to do it. You have to be careful. But if you get entangled with the weight of these things on you, it turns out uh, you don't just say, well, you know, I didn't realize he was that sketchy when I co-signed with him. He, he said he was good for the money. The bank says, oh, that's right. You thought he was good for the money. We did too. Hey, no hard feelings. Moving on. It's not exactly what happens when you co-sign on a bogus loan with a bank, right? You get entangled. You get stuck. You get snared. So what does that have to do with the gospel? Right? There, are a way, there are ways to do money. There are ways to love your neighbor. There are ways to help people out, right, that won't get you entangled. For example, just being generous. Jesus has given me everything. So I don't, you don't need to put up the loan. You don't need to do the thing. I can actually just help you. I can be generous to you. Um, there's a value here in what we're doing and how we do it. It's being wise to not get caught in the world systems because it turns out when, the, when you get caught up in the world systems, they don't just let you go. The world has an economy, the kingdom has an economy, and in our life, they come together somewhere. You use money, right? You're a, you're a human being, you have money, you use money, right? Jesus used money. Uh, they came to him and said, Who, should we pay taxes to the government that's oppressing us? Whose money's on the coin? Whose face is on the coin? Caesar's. Cool, give it back to him, right? He was wise and he navigated it, but the things, the world system itself didn't own him because he saw outside of it because he's God, and we need to see outside of it because we're owned by Jesus. And the reality of the gospel is that we're not needy for the world systems or the world things. We're needy for Jesus and who he is. And we need to be careful as we're getting after stuff. And I think even the, the, the problem with dealing with sketchy people is they're, their chaos tends to intersect with your life. Now, sketchy people need the gospel. I was a sketchy person. I might still be a sketchy person. Depends how you, how you look at it and talk about it, right? One time I was, no, I won't tell that story. I'll stop. It's not a story about me being sketchy. It's a story about a mechanic thinking I'm sketchy. It was funny, but 
Now I've said it, and I have to move on. And if I just told the story, we would have heard it. Moving on. <laughs> Off outline. But hear what it says. It want, the, the, the dad's saying, okay, you're caught up, you're caught in the sketchiness, the sketchiness. You're caught up in it. What do you do? Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Because you get caught up in there, right? You might think it's a good idea to, uh, I don't know, maybe you want to get into it. Maybe you're doing this. I don't know anyone in here who is, so if you're doing this, I'm not picking on you. It's just the spirit, right? You could think, I could buy a bunch of houses. I could get them on mortgage, and then I could, you know, I could just rent them to people. I could make money. I could pay my mortgages. I, I could go up in the world. No, that might be the case. But it turns out if you get caught up in the sketchiness and you're busy dealing with paying people back and, and dealing with these expenses, how much money do you have to be generous when you've spent your money and, and you've vouched for people who are no, not trustworthy? You don't have any money to be generous to anybody. God, Jeremiah, Jeremiah, Genesis 12, says to, says to Abraham, and I think this is true of us, that you've been blessed to be a blessing. The resources that you have in your life are to be used for the kingdom of God, to worship Jesus, and to love people. Well, if you get busy with all your resources tied up in worldly pursuits, how much money do you have to love people? There's a lot of power in being generous to other people without the attachment of the world systems. And you say, here, I'm giving this to you. Sometimes it confuses people. And even you have this opportunity to say, here, I'm giving this to you. And you can even ask this great question. Do you know why I'm giving this to you? Do you know why I'm being generous to you? And you just have some people get sketched out because they think you're actually doing this world thing. Oh, you're giving me the money now so you can get something from me later. I got it. The sketchiness of uh, Proverbs 6 here. I'm going to be generous to you because Jesus Christ has been generous to me. He's given me absolutely everything. And so me giving to you is not a big deal. And that's when you give the great uh, Peter Solomon's portico from from Acts follow-up. I have something better than five bucks to give you. His name is Jesus Christ. This is the truth of who he is. And then the context for you sharing the gospel is your uh, unfettered generosity, unattached to things rather than the way of the world. Let's move on. Verse 6. Switch paragraphs. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? This is one of my favorite proverby proverbs ever. Verse 10. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. This is one of the greatest verses that we can use for works theology. I'll show you how. You're lazy. Stop being lazy. Get to work. Thank you. Good night. Oh, the pastor said, don't be lazy, and I need to try harder. Got it. But we need to remember this in what? The context of redemptive history. We need to remember this in the context of the gospel. We need to remember this in the context of who Jesus is. If you go with me to uh, Colossians.
Don't think the Bible doesn't, the New Testament does say to work hard, but it gives us the reason for our hard working. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, this is the context of masters and bondservants, all this other stuff is in here. But I think this is relevant to everyone. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody's working for the weekend? You're working for Jesus Christ. Anybody heard that song? No? Okay. Moving on. So that means when you go to work and you do your job and your boss is a jerk to you, a real jerk to you, really mean to you, he's not really your boss. And he is your boss. You need to listen to him. You need to respect him, even though he's not the nicest person in the world. The reality is between here and here, between here and the end, you belong to Jesus. That means we need to be wise about the things you do. But we work hard as unto Jesus. What does that mean? Does that mean that you slack when your boss leaves? Turn up the tunes? Kick back? Relax? It actually means you work all the time with the awareness that, one, you've been set free, you've been made alive, that you've been given your job and the resources your job provides you by Jesus for his glory and for your joy. No slacking is what that means. But the slacking isn't try harder so that God will love you. Right? That's what we do spiritually. And even at work sometimes. It's called a Protestant work ethic sometimes. Sometimes the Protestant work ethic is not a good thing. We say, if I don't work hard, God's going to get me. It misses the response. Jesus has done so much for us, which means the things that Jesus has given us to do get to be done in worship. They get to be done in obedience. right? And they get to be done for his glory. Not so that he'll love you, or not even so that your boss will think you, you're awesome. But because we trust Jesus, when he gives you something to do, you trust that he's given for you to do it. Now, if your boss is really mean, you might need to find a new job. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you have to work in the same job forever. I'm just saying if you take the man's money, you do the man's job, because God's using a man to give you the money, and Jesus is your actual boss. We also believe in Sabbath and rest and all those other things, right? We believe that God is, I mean, do you sleep well? One of the greatest things you can do is sleep. Why is sleep so great? Sleep is great. I have four children. And I got to sleep this week, and it was great. But what's better than actually the, 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 um, the reception of sleep and rest is the reality that when I sleep, I make something clear. When I go to sleep and I close my eyes and I'm zonked out, my heart keeps pumping, my lungs keep breathing, Anchor Church keeps moving, my family keeps moving, life co- keeps going on, because Jesus is the king and I'm not. So I work hard because Jesus is the king and I rest because Jesus is the king. Read the, read the rest passages in uh, Deuteronomy and the, the Jubilee commands in uh, Numbers and, and elsewhere. So much of it has to do with you will rest because God is God. Your job to rest is because God is God. Your job to work is because God is God. Verse 12. 
a worthless person. Now we're getting sketchy. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks his eye, signals with his feet, points with his finger. You know what I mean? Nudge, nudge, right? That kind of thing. Yes, we'll pay our taxes. Wink. With perverted heart, devises evil. Continuous showing disc- sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. Um, I think what we really have here is, is people who are being, literally being sketchy, right? Who are operating in the gray area or doing illegal things and not getting caught. Uh, doing things outside of the law, doing things outside of what God's called us to do. And I think some of this, the winking, the nudging, the, the I don't know, the foot signaling, you know, stuff, it's all sneaky. No one else sees it. Nobody else knows about it. What harm does it cause? I'm just selling something out of my trunk. It didn't hurt anybody. People I got it from had plenty of it anyways. Right? There's, there's a sketchiness. There's a gray area. There's a cheating on your taxes and not claiming your income. Because no, well, Uncle Sam doesn't need to know. Right? Wink. Foot thing. I don't know what that is. I don't know how you do. Maybe it's a good sign in my non-sketchiness that I don't know how you do the sketchiness with your feet. But it, but it seems to have this sort of, we're, we're doing things under the, a little under the radar. Nobody needs to know. And I think it's important for us to understand that sin is disobedience, but it's, it's not just disobedience, right? Sin is more than disobedience. Um, sin is unbelief, right? We, we don't believe God. We don't believe that God knows you're cheating on your taxes, right? The season's coming up. It's coming. Did you claim all your stuff? I don't know. You talk to God about it and your tax guy about it, Right? There's unbelief. There's not believing the story and the reality. Uh, If I don't do this, then I won't have enough money to take care of myself. So I have to do illegal, sketchy, gray area stuff. If I don't do it that way, what does that say about who God is and what he's doing in the world? What Jesus has done for you uh, and and the reality. And there's unbelief there. You know, on the other end, there's there's a glory piece. There's there's believing false stories. There's the, I'm going to be sketchy when no one's watching. Uh, so that everyone else will think I'm awesome the rest of the time. Because if everybody knows that I'm sketchy, then I'm the sketchy guy. But if I'm just doing a wink and a thing, and it's all, it's all in the background, nobody knows about it. Sin is big and scary. Right? There's wiling out in disobedience. There's unbelief. There's idolatry. There's believing a different history than the history of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, there's, I mean, even over here, I think is, Right things, wrong reasons, right? Which isn't quite what this passage is talking about, but it's good to hit the trifecta. The trifecta. There's right things, wrong reasons. There's, I mean, you could, it's, this is how scary sin is, right? This is how sketchy it is to be sketchy. To get diapers for solid ground. Joe talked about it earlier. I would really encourage you. It's a scary thing to be a person who can't afford diapers for your kids. You can bring them anytime. You drop them off. We do that because we believe every human being is an image bearer of God worthy of dignity and respect and love, and they're our neighbors, and we're just trying to help take care of them. Now, 
You can bring diapers to help take care of people, or you can bring diapers so that, and even you can do it, no one's even watching you. No one even watches you bring the diapers in. But you say to yourself, man, I am awesome. I have got the right size. Yes. Whew. All right, I'll get myself some coffee now and sit down and listen. Right? Self-glorifying. You're not giving them the diapers. You're giving yourself the diapers so that you can pat yourself on the back. And that's sketchy. That's all disobedience, and it is all sketchy. Now, when we understand the truth of the gospel, we understand even when we look at something and say, well, that's really the gray area, and that's really hard, and that's really difficult, and I have to trust the sovereign God of the universe that he is going to take care of me, that he has the hairs numbered on my head, that he sent his son to die and make me right with him, and my holiness and my life and my pursuit of him is more important uh, than money in the bank, even if it's easy money. 16, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Um, these, these things, have you ever seen one of these? Four things he likes and five things he really likes, or six things he hates and seven things he really, really hates. It's a literary device. Uh, it's not meant to um, be all-inclusive. There are other things that God hates. Um, it is meant to point some things out, and then at seven, number seven or number whatever, in the literary devices you're reading your own Bible, it's meant to point out that last thing as, as either really good or really bad or, or whatever. But hear this. I missed this. Somebody else showed it to me. A commentator. Uh, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Here, here okay. Haughty eyes. That's being proud. That's thinking you're better than somebody else. Eyes. Lying tongue. The Lord hates lies. They use their tongue to tell lies. Eyes, tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. Murderous hands. Hands, eyes, tongue. A heart that deceives wicked plans. Again, so the heart isn't just the, the, um, the muscle in your chest, but the, the, the seat of the human person in the Old Testament uh, anthropology, if you will. Uh, the feet that make haste to run to evil. Okay, so those are our six things. Wait, pardon me, one more. False witness who breathes out lies, breath. Those are all things God gave you. We understand the gospel, we understand the story, we understand he gave you your hands, your feet, your breath, your tongue, your heart, your mind. Everything about you belongs to Jesus. And everything about you is built to enjoy God and bring him glory. God made everything good. He made human beings and he called them very good. You are a human being. We're corrupted in the world in which we live, in the brokenness of the world in which we live. You're being put right by Jesus Christ. You're being made whole by Jesus Christ. And you're given absolutely everything you have for him. And what do we do? As human beings. We look at other people, think we're better than them. We don't tell the truth. Hands are shedding some blood. With our heart, we think about how we can play the uh, sort of city... Uh, dogpile, uh, king of the mountain game, uh, with our feet we use to take us to the sketchy places we go. You know, you can go on and on and on. And he singles this out, and the one who sows discord among brothers. I think he has in mind here the people of God specifically because it's written to the people of God. This would be true in a local church. This would be true of the church generally speaking. This would be true of a family, I think. I think you could imply it there. People that use what they have to rip down people in their own family. 
things what he has in mind here. So that, how does that apply to us as Christians then? Let's put the gospel lamp on this. That means that we need to be careful to have good things to say about the brothers and sisters in the city. You know, uh, I don't agree with uh, Jordan Taylor at Calvary Fellowship. He doesn't agree with me everything, but he's a dear, dear brother. And I want my aim to be how do I, how do I lift up this church? And our, our church doesn't ever want to be in a, in a competition like, well, how can we be better than Calvary Fellowship down the hill? That's stupid, right? That's sowing discord among the brothers. I, I want to I speak positively about him because he's a godly man trying to preach the gospel in a dark city. The guys at Green Lake Pres just down the hill, they are awesome. They're Presbyterian. They don't do everything we do. They don't see everything the way we see it. And yet I want to really focus on how awesome they are, right? They are great. They love Jesus, and they're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in a dark city, you know? We're here together. We're the people of God. We want to assume the best of one another. We want to make it our aim to build each other up, to be a member of a church, is to say, not how am I better than somebody else? Or, you know, because all these things actually, haughty eyes, lying tongue, all those things will sow discord. Uh, we want to be careful if we have an issue with someone we bring into the person instead of telling everybody else in our community group, did you see the way that guy did the thing about the thing? Olives? He ate all the olives? Come on, man. Just talk to him about it. Tell him to bring two cans next time. It's okay. <laughs> right? That's a very trivial example. And then you can blow that up and out from there. If my aim is, how do I use what God's given me to help other people follow Jesus? Our aim needs to be sort of thinking positively about one another uh, as much as... And we also want to love one another. If we see somebody walking in sin, we talk to them about it. That's part of helping people follow Jesus. But we don't sit around and wait till they leave community and be like, can you believe that guy? Hey, man, can we get coffee and talk? There's a big difference there. There's a big difference between sowing discord and loving each other, even when each other are messing up. Oh, man. We're going to make it, but we have to keep going. God's given you everything, and that's what we understand through the gospel, right? I'm going to read what we already kind of unpacked and push on through because it goes into the next paragraph. My son, keep your father's commandment for the sake of... Uh, and, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and a teaching is a light. And the reproofs of the discipline are the way of life. Now, he's going to apply it specifically um, to kind of an adulterous woman situation. Uh, and at the same time, uh, this is really, and we covered that pretty extensively last week, if you want to listen to last week's um, sermon. And we'll hit it here a little bit, but the main point of this is actually about temptation, if you look at what it has to say here. The reproofs of discipline are a way of life to preserve you from the evil woman. And just like Lady Wisdom is set up as sort of this uh, literary device to point us into the ways of God, we have this adulterous woman uh, in, in Proverbs to sort of point to the way of wreck and ruin. Everything that's true of the adulterous woman is true of real adulterous woman, but is a literary device. Um, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress, do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes, for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down precious life. Now here's what it says about all that. Notice it started in the heart. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? If you play with fire, you will get burned. 
There's no sort of entertaining. It starts in the heart. It's entertaining sin. Here it's speaking specifically about adultery and sexual immorality, but you could apply this, again, the gospel lamp, this goes out. Right? This goes out from there. Once you've, once you've gone down that road, Jesus is going to say Matthew 5. Once we've done it in our heart, we've entertained the action, and even the heart, even playing with fire, we'll get you burned. We'll get you burned. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can he walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. It will not go well. There's not just one time. There's not just, just thinking about it. It either is or it isn't. It is black and white. It's sin or it's not sin. It's crossing the line or it's not crossing the line. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. They look at him and say, you were hungry, that's why you stole the bread? Well, I understand that. You're still going to jail, is what they're saying there. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. It messes everything up. Sexual immorality, particularly here we have in the context of marriage. Uh, it's not that God can't work amazing works, uh, that there are things that are impossible for human beings that are possible with the Lord. We hear that in Jesus. Jesus has amazing, restorative, healing power. But man, this sexual morality in the context of marriage and life in general, but really in the context of marriage is the focus here. Does that cause wreck and ruin? It does. Not only that, for jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will expect, accept no compassion. He will refuse. Uh, uh, he will refuse thought, uh, though you multiply gifts. Uh, the husband living in community, because this is a tight knit community, right? In Proverbs, he's not going to let it go. But I do think what this illustrates is this idea: you cannot play with fire without getting burned. Uh, this is sort of our Icarus approach. To sin. What I mean by that, Icarus is a, you know, it's a Greek myth. Also known, Kid Icarus, 1987, Nintendo Master System. That was my first introduction to most Greek mythology, by the way. Um, story of Icarus, right? Or the Iron Maiden song, but don't, don't go get any Iron Maiden records. Shouldn't even said that. Redact that one. Um, so the story of Icarus, right? His dad, he, he makes the labyrinth, and they've got to get off Crete. And uh, he tells him two things. that he can't be too, he, So he makes these wings out of wax, and they're supposed to fly. And he basically tells him, uh, you know, you got to be careful. you got to walk in confidence. you got to do this in confidence, or the sea is going to eat you up. But don't fly close, too close to the sun, because the wax will melt, and you'll crash into the sea. So this is what it's warning against. As human beings, and I've heard this question, you may be asking this question yourself, 
how close can, how far can I go down the road before it's sin? Friend, you've asked the wrong question. Your heart's already broken and it's already messed up. So how, how far can I go before I, I, I disobey God? And all of a sudden our aim now, whether it's with sexual immorality, whether it's with other items of sin, we're not saying, how do I stay as close as I possibly can to Jesus? Right? We looked at this last week. What does it say about sexual immorality? Flee! Run! He's saying, don't even, don't even go near the door in five, right? What we say is, how close can I get to the sin before I crash and burn? That's not a gospel response. That's a works-based response. The works-based response is, how much sin can I sin before my sin's too much sin to get me in trouble? The gospel response is, Jesus Christ has paid the price for all my sins, made me right, made me whole, and how do I spend my whole life enjoying Jesus and staying as close to Jesus as possible? And this takes us back to our triangle, right? We've got disbelief, self-glory, and disobedience, right? Somewhere in between the two, we're not believing, A, that you're totally forgiven people. You're forgiven. And when you understand how forgiven you are, you don't want to run to sin. You want to run to Jesus because Jesus is awesome. There's a belief piece, but there's also that disobedience piece. How much disobeying can I disobey before it's disobedience? Wrong question. You've been set free for freedom, right? Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. You have been busted out of prison to not think about how close you can get to the prison that is your own sin before they throw you back in the can. Your aim is to stay as close to Jesus and far away from the prison as possible. It's for freedom you've been set free. You've not been set free to push the envelope. You've been set free to trust and love and know Jesus. And this is grace to you. This is freedom. This is joy. Right? And, you, and you, we disbelieve something else. That this thing over here is, <coughs> excuse me, where the real joy is. And the following Jesus stuff is kind of the bummer. Right? What we actually miss is that jail sucks. And that other stuff, that old stuff, that dead man stuff, taking off the old man, putting on the new. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, you're dead in your trespasses and sins, but have been made alive, but have been made alive together through Jesus Christ. You're alive. Do living stuff. You're a living man now. You're not a dead man anymore. You're alive. Do living people stuff. Right? So it's not how close can I get to the old lifestyle. It's how close can I stay to Jesus because that's where the joy is. Now when we take that lamp and we approach our sin, all of a sudden it's not, so I'm a Christian, so I don't lie because Christians don't lie. It's, I'm a Christian and I don't lie because I know the truth personally. His name is Jesus Christ. We can go on and on and on from there. When, when I don't believe this truth, I put myself in another narrative or another story or another history that's a false history and a false narrative and a false story. It's the one where I have to look out for myself, where I need to do whatever I need to do to get whatever I want. It's the, I need to do what I can do to be the king of the mountain. It's, I, I do what I got to do because this is the survival of the fittest. That's a different story than the gospel. It's a different story. When we're awake to this reality, 
So the better I understand the gospel, the better I understand the Bible, and the better I understand the story, the better I navigate reality. This actually pushes us closer to Jesus, closer to his word, and closer to what he has for us. And we understand that it's free. Freedom has been set free. If you, if you don't know Jesus, this is the gospel. He saves. You do anything to earn it? Honestly, you can't do things to keep it. Not height, no depth, no powers, no principalities, or anything could ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We walk in faith, not by sight. We don't walk by works or rules. We walk by what he's given us to do. And we walk in faith in him, responding to him, following him, trusting him, loving him, being freed by him, being washed clean by him. Get right with God. God gets right with you. Getting right with God looks like saying, God, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Save me. Make me yours. And if you're Jesus's, what story are you believing are you believing the history that God saved you so that you could get to work making yourself right with him? Because that's a different story than history. If you believe that Jesus saved you so you could while out uh, the gospel's fire insurance, he paid the price for my sins so I can spend the afternoon doing keg stands or whatever other nonsense you want to get up to, you missed the truth of the gospel, and you're believing a different story. And Paul's going to say, if you think he paid you the price for your sins so you could keep on sinning, you didn't actually hear the gospel, and you might not even believe what he's had to say. So it's not works, and it's not anarchy. It's gospel. He saved you for life, for joy, for freedom. Has made you, you're made right with him because of him. Believe that story, because that's history. That's the truth. That's reality. And take that lamp as you do your life. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you. This was a difficult text to handle. We were all over the place with it. But I thank you, Jesus, that we can trust it. Where I even fall short in any of it, God, it's still your word. And you're still God. Help us to understand your word. Help us to have your word be a lamp to our feet. Help us to believe the truth of the gospel and who you are. Jesus, we need you so desperately to guide us and to lead us. I pray our necessity for you would drive our life. I pray for us that we wouldn't default to, to flying as close to the sun as possible. We would default to walking in your ways and being as close to you as possible. They we're not pushing the lines and the limits of sin. We're pushing the nearness and closeness that we're seeking with you. Jesus, help us to just know your cross was sufficient to make us right with you. The curtain is torn. I don't have to do good works to get to you. I have to look to the cross. I know that you came down to get to me. Help us to stay so close to this truth and so close to this gospel. And just help us to know, whether we're feeling it or not, that you are present with us now. You are helping us now to follow you. You've given us new hearts and renewing our minds that we can love you and know you more every day. Help us to believe and speak the truth to, your, to, to, to ourselves and to others and to walk in your ways and to live for your glory to know you all the days of our life. 
Help us to just praise you and enjoy you with everything we've got, Jesus. God, we love you. Pray these things for your glory, for our joy in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.